So um, last week I had the uh, opportunity just to share something of the prophetic vision that God gave this church many years ago. And uh, those words that I shared last week are all up on the webpage. And if you weren't here last week, I really encourage you to get up on, on, onto the webpage and just see some of the prophetic things that God has spoken over the church over many years. And just remind yourself of those and refresh yourself in them and pray into them so that we can see the fullness of those things in this local church. And one of the words that I did share, which has been a key prophetic word for us, is Isaiah 41, verse 17. And I'm just going to read it, so don't worry about going there. It just says, When the poor and needy seek water, and there's none, and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers on barren heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land a spring. I will put in the wilderness the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle, and the olives, and I will set in the desert the cypress, the plain, and the pine tree together, that they might see and know, may consider and understand together that the Lord, that the hand of the Lord has done this, the Holy One of Israel has created it. And I said to you last week, one of the wonderful promises that God has given us as a church is that uh, that picture of different kinds of trees being planted in a desert place, for us was a picture of revival. It was a picture of God bringing together different people from different backgrounds and cultures and different race groups, bringing them together in one place so that people would be able to see that God had done an amazing thing and people would have to say, this is the hand of the Lord. This is not done by men. This is God's thing. And so that's been a, an amazing promise to us and one that we still hold on to, that this would become a multicultural church, uh, it would become a, a church of all gen, uh, not all genders, <laughs> yes, all genders, but you know what I'm saying, multi-generational, multinational community of believers, because that's a picture of heaven, isn't it? And so um, I want to hold that before you this morning. It's a beautiful, beautiful promise from God to us. And I've been thinking about that over the last couple of weeks, because when you bring together a diverse group of people, that can have its own set of challenges, can't it? Because everyone brings their culture, everyone brings their way of doing things, everyone brings their, their nationality into a community. And so how do we work together as people that God is changing and God is transforming? How do we work together? If we want to have a multicultural community, how does it happen? It's a good question to ponder, isn't it? I think it requires bravery. I think it really does require bravery. And I think it's only possible by the Holy Spirit. But I want to share something with you this week that just really excited me again. I've been reading a book by Tim Keller, who's a wonderful um, uh, preacher, theologian, and for me, a mentor in some ways, as I'm beginning to understand the gospel more and more. And he has a commentary on Galatians that I've been rereading. And... Um, Something really struck me this week that I think is a key for us, and I want to share that with you. And for me, I found it very, very exciting, all right? And it's from Galatians chapter 2. So I want to read verse 11 to 21. And if you've got your Bible open in Galatians, we're going to read this portion together. It just says, when Cephas, that's another name for Peter, all right? Peter, it's a different name for Peter. So when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before men came from James, remember we've been studying James, remember James, James was a traditionalist, he was a Jew, he was a conservative in some ways, 
he was uh, quite orthodox in his, in his outlook. So he said, before these people came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and he separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Now that just simply refers to a group of false teachers that were teaching that you not only had to believe in Jesus, but you, you needed to be circumcised as well. So in other words, believing in Jesus wasn't enough. You needed to become Jewish to become a Christian. And so this is what uh, the whole book of Galatians is written in terms of opposing that theology. Paul is, is refuting that theology. And so he says, the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically to, along with Peter, that even Barnabas... Now Barnabas was a called the son of encouragement. He was a missional man. And it's quite ironic because Barnabas traveled with a guy called Titus, who is not Jewish. And even even Barnabas, this traveling missionary who was traveling with a Gentile, he starts to act in a hypocritical way because he's influenced by Peter. So what I want to start by saying is it doesn't matter our, our... social standing, it doesn't even matter our position in the church, all of us can act hypocritically. Yeah? And yeah, we have Barnabas acting hypocritically, we have Peter acting hypocritically, and Paul is refuting them. He's getting in their face and he's saying, you are wrong! And he's challenging them. And he says, uh, when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the gospel not in step with the truth of the gospel. I said to Cephas, I said to Peter before all of them, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we have also believed in Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. And you might say, and what on earth has this got to do with a multicultural church? It has everything to do with a multicultural church. Absolutely everything, and I hope that you'll see that this morning. Okay? And I'm excited about this. I've been looking forward to preaching this. And so... I've called this message, Living in Line with the Gospel. Living in Line with the Gospel. And the whole, this portion of Galatians Galatians chapter 2, is speaking about us as believers in the church, bringing our whole lives into line with the Gospel, the truth of the Gospel. Okay? And the process never stops in our lives. When you get saved, that process begins, and it doesn't stop until you die or you go to be with Jesus. Our lives are one continual process of realigning ourselves around the gospel message and the thrust of the gospel and the direction that the gospel wants to take in our lives. Our our lives are continually being uh, realigned, recalibrated. And so I want to say to you as a Christian, the Christian life is one of the most flexible lives that you could ever hope to live. Because God is always, by His Holy Spirit, always saying, Craig, that thing in your life, let me help you change that. Let me help you see that from a different point of view. Ian, that thing in your life, that needs to die. Let me help you see the gospel more fully so that you can realign your life around that truth. And so our lives are continually being realigned around the truth of the gospel. And here... 
Peter is one of the founding apostles. He's a big cheese. He's one of the founding fathers in the Christian faith. He finds out that even he has to make some practical changes that Paul is pointing out to him. He's already gone to Jerusalem. Peter and Paul had met in Jerusalem at the Council of of Jerusalem. And you read this in the book of Acts. And they spoke to each other and they all agreed that all that was needed to be saved was that you believe in Jesus. By faith, they all agreed that you didn't add anything to that. That was the great truth that united the church in the early years. And uh, we are saved by faith and nothing else. And he stood, Peter and Paul stood together on that truth. And there was this council in Jerusalem and they left agreeing, now that's what we all believe. Now we are in Antioch, which is a Gentile city, and now Peter, is, his face is being got into by Paul. And Paul is saying to his face, I don't agree with you. So these two men that had agreed are suddenly very much at loggerheads, these two church leaders. And we see from this portion that what matters most to Paul is is the gospel. The gospel of Jesus is the thing that motivates him more than anything else. He lives for the gospel. And so in this Gentile city, we see Paul's theology, his understanding of the gospel summarized in a little sentence. We are justified by faith. If you want to understand the gospel in a nutshell, there's the gospel for you. We are made right with God by faith, by believing in Jesus. That simply is the gospel message. We are justified by faith. And it's the first time that Paul actually writes it down in a little sentence like that. We are justified by faith. So why was Peter wrong, and what was Peter wrong about? Simply, Paul says, you've forgotten your table manners. This big theological thing is reduced to a little simple practical thing. He says, your table manners are wrong. And he points to a practical thing. He says, you've changed the way you eat. You used to eat with everybody. And now you've excluded yourself and you only prepare to eat with your little group. That's what he's saying. And he challenges Peter in a radical way. You see even in verse 12 that Peter used to eat with the Gentiles. But he no longer did. So he, he was behaving in one way and now he's changed his behavior. The most surprising thing is this, that really for Jews in the first century... It's not that Peter would stop eating with Gentiles that would be the surprising thing. The surprising thing would be that Peter was eating with Gentiles in the first place. Because for Jews, they had this complicated system of what was called the ceremonial law. And basically the ceremonial ceremonial law was taught to Jewish people because they believed that you had to be clean to worship in the presence of God. And so if you touched a dead animal, you were unclean and you had to be ceremonially washed so that you could go and worship in the presence of God. And if you weren't circumcised, you were not clean. And if you ate certain foods, and you know all the thing of pork and all that kind of stuff, if you ate those foods, you were not clean and you had to be cleansed ceremonially so that you could go into the presence of God and worship Him. All right? So this is what Peter would have had drummed into him as a Jewish person. And if you read Mark chapter 7, verse 14, 
Jesus says this to his disciples, and you probably know the story well. They are talking about what makes a person clean and unclean. And Jesus very simply says, he says, it's not what goes into your mouth that makes you clean or unclean. It's what comes out of your heart and what comes out of your mouth that shows whether you're clean or unclean. Remember? And if you go and read that portion in Mark 7, it says, it says in a parenthesis, he says, Jesus said this in order to show that the law had passed away. So even Jesus comes and he says, because of me, when you believe in me, all that ceremonial stuff, all the things of washing your hands and wearing the right clothes and observing rituals and all that stuff, because of me, that's all passed away. And we are justified, we are saved, not by doing all that ceremonial stuff, we are saved by believing in Jesus. All right, so Jesus establishes it. And even for Peter, if you know the story in Acts, Peter has this vision. He has this vision of a sheet coming down from heaven, and all on the sheet are all kinds of animals that Jews would never eat. And he hears a voice saying to him in his vision, Peter, kill and eat. And he replies, he says, no God, surely, I'm a Jew, been a Jew from my birth, I, I will not, I will not uh, touch this food, I will not eat this. And the voice from heaven says to him in his vision, he says, let no man call unclean what I have made clean. And so Pete, Peter has even had this this vision from God confirming that this is what Jesus had already said. And if you go on and you read the story, immediately after that, Peter meets this guy called Cornelius. Cornelius is a Gentile. He's not a Jew. And he is a repentant and he comes and he gets born again. Radically, he gets born again. He gets saved. And Peter says this in Acts 10.34. He says, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. And so Peter has even had this revelation for himself. He gets it. Everyone who is saved is saved because they believe in Jesus. It doesn't matter what tribe they come from, what culture they come from, what unifies us, what brings us together is Christ. So he's had this vision. He's had the revelation. He started... Um, he starts living it out. It's, uh, after that, you can read further. It says, even though he's get, he gets criticized by other people, he eats with the Gentiles, and he, he even argues, he says that the, the, the Gentiles have been made clean. They've been purified by faith. Acts 15, verse 7. After there'd been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in my, the early days, God made a choice amongst you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel. Peter's even saying, I'm preaching to the, to the Gentiles and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having purified, cleansed their hearts by faith. This is amazing. Peter's lived with Jesus. He's seen how Jesus lived. He's heard what Jesus said. He has this revelation of this vision. He has this understanding. He starts living a certain way. And yet now in Antioch, Paul has to get in his face and say, you are a hypocrite. You have changed your eating habits. You were eating with the Gentiles and you no longer eat with them. You are wrong. <laughs> you see, I'm not sure that Peter even had changed his convictions. Because we read in verse 14 of, of the chapter that he knew all about the regulations for food and dress laws, and he knew there were only Jewish customs, and that he didn't have to keep them. So he knew that. 
But when it came to the Gentiles, it came to the, the, the non-Jews, he had simply stopped acting in line with his conviction. He stopped living in line with the gospel. And as I said, even Barnabas, who was traveling with Titus, even Barnabas gets influenced by this hypocrisy. And I want to say to you, as gently as I can, the church is still full of people who are like the circumcision party. The circumcision party said, to be acceptable, to be a Christian, you, ha- you must believe on Jesus, but these are the things you must also do. You must also be circumcised. You must also eat this food. You must also do that. You must- no. And Paul says, I reject that. And I want to say to you, if the gospel is going to set us free, we have to learn to live in that freedom. You believe in Jesus, and you don't wear these certain clothes. Ladies, you only wear your hair like this. You don't touch alcohol. We add, we add, we add, we add, we add, we add things that the Bible does not add. You are saved by faith in Jesus. That is it. This is the gospel that we preach. This is the only message that we have. We are saved by faith. And let legalism die in our, in our hearts. Let legalism die in this church. Let this be a church where everyone can find a place from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, because legalism is dying in us. And I want to point you to some things that I think are legalistic. I think that there was some racism that that Peter had to overcome in his life. Why? Because it had been drilled into him since he was a little boy, and there must have been a sense of superiority because it had been drilled into him through the law that anyone from a different culture was a little bit inferior to the Jewish culture. And so perhaps um, he had to overcome this thing in his life, Peter. And Peter was showing in his behavior that he was more concerned with cultural differences than he was with gospel unity. You hear what I'm saying? He was more concerned with cultural differences than he was with the unity that comes from the gospel. And so Paul challenges him and he says, this is my second point, very simple point, Peter, you have to learn to walk straight. (laughs) You have to learn to walk in a straight line. He doesn't point to the fact that actually Peter's behavior was rude. It was rude. He doesn't point to the fact that Peter's behavior was unwelcoming, that it actually excluded people. And it was doing that. But he doesn't point to that. Fundamentally, he sees the issue as a much deeper issue. He points to people to the fact, he says, Peter, your life, you're an apostle even, but your life, what you are, how you are living, is not in line with the freedom that we have in the gospel. That's what he points him to. He says, the gospel still needs to transform you because your life is out of line in this particular area. Your life is out of kilter. You need to realign your life, Peter, around the gospel and the freedom of the gospel. And so, if you look at the original translation, it's very interesting because he actually says, the prefix is ortho. Ortho walking. When you say you go to an orthodontist, what does that mean? It means your teeth are skew. And the orthodontist is a dentist who makes things straight. He makes your teeth straight. So Paul is challenging Peter and saying, you are not walking in a straight line. You are not walking straight with the gospel. You are all over the place. Get in line with the gospel. You hear what I'm saying? Walk straight. 
And so here's the thing. Peter is, is, uh, Paul is saying that the gospel is first a message. It is a, it is a set of claims. It is, um, it's truth. That's the first thing that, that Paul is saying. And the message is this, the message of the gospel is this, is that you and I are all weak and sinful, that we try and save ourselves, and how we try and save ourselves is we try and obey rules. And if we feel good about the fact that we are observing the rules, we feel good about ourselves. And we think, yes, I'm doing okay. And that's really saying, I don't need a savior, I can just save myself by obeying the rules. All right? That's the gospel message. It says you can't save yourself by obeying the rules. All right? The rules are too difficult. The rules are, are too high. The law that God calls us to love with all of our hearts is too high for us to even begin to, uh, to uh, fulfill. And so that's why we need a Savior. That's the, all, all, all the law does. All the law shows us is that we need Jesus. <laughs> we need Jesus more than anything to help us to live. And the gospel also says that even though we are sinful, even though that we are tend towards sin and we tend to do, do, to do the wrong thing, there is a Savior. There is Jesus who has fulfilled every aspect of the law for us so that we don't have to do it anymore. Isn't that an amazing thing? <laughs> and so it means that the righteous, Jesus' perfect righteousness is imputed to me. And my sinfulness, every, everything that is wrong in my life, is imputed to Christ. And when he died on the cross and it said he took all sin, it means everything, every wrong motive, every wrong thing I've ever done was put onto Jesus and he became sin. And sin died. And so when God looks at me, even though I'm still sinful and tend towards doing the wrong thing, legally he sees the perfect righteousness of Jesus on my life. That is the gospel. And so, Paul not only says that's the first thing he's trying to get Peter to see, the second thing that he's trying to say to all of us as well is that message, this, this gospel message, has implications for every area of our lives that we have to work out. And we do that by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's what I'm saying. Our lives are continually, because of this message of grace that has changed our lives and transformed us from the inside out, because of this message, every area of our lives is then conformed to the likeness of Jesus and the gospel in us begins to be lived out by the power of the Spirit and everything changes. How we parent, how we love people, who we eat with, how we see the world. It all changes as the gospel message begins to germinate and bubble in our lives and every area of our lives starts to be transformed. Oh, it's amazing. The problem is this, is that the assumptions of the gospel are completely opposite to the assumptions of the world. And yet you and I, we grow up assuming some of the things that the world says because we grow up in the world. And so this is why we're constantly going through this process of realignment, the gospel in us, the kingdom in us, transforming our minds and our thinking and our values as our lives come into alignment with him. Yeah? So, my third point is this. Very simple. I've got four points, and then we're going to worship and minister some more. The third thing I want to say is this. is Peter's mistake can be our mistake. 
Peter's mistake can be our mistake. Peter's problem was that he was a nationalist. What does this have to do with the multicultural church? It has everything to do with the multicultural church. His sin was one of nationalism. He, he was convinced that who he was, his culture, his race group, was more important than the gospel. And that's how he was living. I want to say to you this. Nationalism, putting more trust in who you are, whether you are English, whether you are Welsh, whether you are Irish, whether you are South African, whether you are Kenyan, whether you are Nigerian, whatever you are. Putting trust in your culture is a form of legalism. Do you get it? It's legalism. It's saying that the gospel has not yet transformed that part of me. I think actually the most important thing that makes me who I am is not that Jesus has made me clean. It's the fact that I'm culturally something. My culture, I'm Greek first before I'm a Christian. No, no. We are Christians first. If you read the New Testament, it never ever says stop being a Greek. It never says stop being Chinese. It never says stop being English. It never says stop being Welsh. We take our culture with us, but the thing that unites us first is Jesus, is the cross, is the gospel. That's it. That's how it works. We are first Christians. There's no Jew. There's no Greek. There's no slave. There's no free. There's no male. There's no female. We are one in Christ. And yes, we do remain English and South African and Kenyan and Malawian and whatever. But that's not, those things are, are brought into a unity because of Jesus. This is radical. I'll tell you why it's radical because it transforms the church. Then every culture has a place, then every person has a place. Why? <laughs> because we don't have to just be with those that are like us. We can be with those that are not like us because what brings us together is the cross. It's so exciting. But you need to be brave. And I need to, I need to be brave. I want to say this when I say that national, uh, nationalism is legalism. Look for these things. If you see an area of your life that is produces pride, and it produces fear, and the result of that in, in your family is you see that there are little groups that are forming, and people don't want to speak to each other, know this, that is legalism. That's what's producing it. We won't be with you because we are our little group, and we won't be with you because we are our little group. That is legalism, and we need to break it down with all of our hearts by the power of the Spirit. And so, for example, in the church, I've mentioned it already, you can, see, you can see this in the church. Unfortunately, you see this in the church. Because there are denominations, there are flows, there are groups, whatever you call them, who have practices that make them different from another group or flow or whatever. And most of the time, that has very little to do with the gospel, and it has more to do with church policy or how we see churches working. And so it can be very, very a subtle trap that we can all fall into is that we stress our differences like we're not like that church. We're not like that church. We, we, we're good at this. We, well, we're trying to show that our church is the best one. <laughs> Isn't it? That's what we're really trying to do. Or, for example, I read to my amazement that now in the UK there are seven different social classes. What is that? 
Seven social classes. Upper, upper middle class aristocracy, whatever, and all the breakdown of in society. My friends, we don't bring that into the church. There's no class system in the church. None. There's no nationalistic system in the church. There should be no racism in the church. How many of us don't know people now who did belong to other social classes or other, or other nationalities or other cultures that we would never have known if we weren't part of a church? Huh? Isn't that true? The church is a magnificent thing. It's, a, it's, it's God's vehicle for changing communities and, and mindsets. And so it's quite possible that working class people might look down on wealthy Christians. Or wealthy Christians looking down on working class people. Or Christians from the one political party like the conservatives looking down on labor people. I know some of my friends that live in America that have said to my face, it is not possible to be a Christian and be a Democrat. Really? Yes. It's it's so divided that people... It's only possible to be a Christian if you're a Republican. I don't get it. It's not the gospel. And sometimes even like talented people in the church, good musicians or artists or whatever, they must also get their head around that 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 doesn't make us any better than anybody else. We don't look down on anyone else who's not artistically talented. You hear what I'm saying? There are so many levels that the gospel applies in our lives. We are all treated as equals. We've learned it in James, isn't it? Show no partiality. And that sometimes is hard for rich people to come into a church where their money actually doesn't give them any status whatsoever. We are one in Christ. I hope you are enjoying this. This is the thing, and this is what I want to encourage you in. You see, sometimes when we are with people from different cultures, we don't feel comfortable because it's, the culture is alien to us, isn't it? And that's why I said this requires bravery. This requires Holy Spirit uh, bravery in our lives. And you see, Peter, this is, was his, his, his hypocrisy, Peter's hypocrisy, because he was, he was responding in a way that seemed well-mannered. Because he would sit next to people in church, in an official church meeting, he would sit next to them, but he wouldn't want to eat with them. He wouldn't take them into his home. He wouldn't say, let me share my life with you. He wouldn't say, this is my house, these are my things. He wouldn't open his heart. And how much of the church can't be like, isn't like that? We're happy to be together in official meetings, worshiping and praising God, but we don't share our lives with each other from people, with people that are culturally different. Can you see that the gospel is a radical message? <laughs> it's not, it, it, all our comfort zones, it just shakes up. And I like being with Mario because Mario, Mario is Greek and I like Greek food. So the Greek culture is easy for me. That's easy. But what about other cultures that we're not so um, comfortable with? We, we kind of we find things alien. We find them a little bit strange. I, I was fast, when I was a little bit younger, I traveled quite a lot to the east, to China and Taiwan and Mongolia and Singapore, Hong Kong. It's amazing to me how many Christians going on mission 
bring the love of Christ to a different culture would not eat the food. I just didn't get it. How can you be like that? You go to a culture and then you say, well, Jesus loves you, but I don't want to eat your food. I'd rather go to McDonald's. It's just like a complete disconnect. It doesn't, it's just not, it's just, it's weird. And I'm not, I'm not accusing anyone. I'm trying to put a heavy on you. There's a key here that I think we, we, we can embrace and learn. You see, because we're saying this, that without the gospel, this is the thing, without the gospel, our hearts contrive to manufacture self-worth and self-esteem by comparing our little group to someone else's group. And that's how we feel good about ourselves. My group is better than your group. The Brazilians are the best footballers in the world, Joe. They are. But if that's what gives you your significance, the fact that, that's, that's what I'm trying to say. We are in Christ, that's where our significance comes from. Yeah? And I think this is for me the most subtle thing and perhaps the most difficult way that we have to learn to identify this in the church is that we take our preferences and we give them, we give them uh, an authority that they don't have. We, we take our cultural things and we say these are actually kingdom things and they're not kingdom things, they are just cultural things. And that's where we get into trouble. So, for example, you might like a certain style of worship that is boisterous and loud, and uh, there are many churches that like boisterous and loud expressions of worship. There are other churches that are more traditional, and they like, they like uh, more conservative approaches to worship. This is the worst mistake that we can make. We can, the worst mistake we can make is by trying to say our cultural preference is actually God's preference. Ah, oh, those guys that sing in choirs, they've got it wrong. Yes? The church is full of that. I, I, I embrace certain cultures, and there's certain cultures of worship that I love more than others. But it doesn't mean they are God's way of doing it. It just means it's a different way of doing it. Can we liberate each other and free each other to enjoy every kind of style of worship? It doesn't mean it's spiritually better. Are you with me? Okay, lastly, my last point is that Paul's response can become our response if we learn it. Paul's response can become our response. You see what Paul is looking for? He's looking for behind Peter's bad table manners and behind his rudeness and behind his unwelcomeness, he's looking for the real issue. And the real issue is that he's self-righteous. And so he's pointing Peter to his own self-righteousness and saying, Peter, you haven't, read, you haven't seen that yet, but that needs to change, that, that self-righteous thing that makes you think that you're better than someone else because you come from a certain culture, that needs to die. And it dies as the cross comes into your life and into my life. And his argument is very simple. If you look at verse 15 and 16, his basic argument, Paul's basic argument, is this. God didn't have fellowship with you on the basis of your culture or your race. That had nothing to do with it. He said you were a devout Jew, but that had nothing to do with it. Therefore, how can you have fellowship with other people based only on your culture and your race? That's what he challenges Peter with. He says, no, God had a basis of relationship with you that was purely his grace in your life, and your basis for relationship with anyone else is not on the basis of your culture or your race, it's on the basis of God's grace in your life that you relate to other people. This is incredibly challenging, isn't it? But it's wonderful. It is so liberating. And so Paul doesn't just say to Peter that racism is a sin. 
which it is. It's absolutely his sin, a sin. But he uses the gospel to show Peter, who is an apostle, a church father. He shows him by the gospel that there are spiritual roots to the mistake that he's making. There's a spiritual root, and he's saying that the root of racism, the root of, of saying that you are better than someone else based on your culture, or your education, racism, legalism, as I've tried to put it, the, the, the root of that is that you have resisted the gospel in your life in a certain area. And you haven't yet let the gospel come into that part of your life and transform that part of your life. So, I want to say quite plainly that racism or nationalism is a continuation of the idea that we can save ourselves, that we don't need a savior in that particular area of our lives. And we think we are better or more righteous than someone else because we belong to a certain group, ethnicity, or nationality. And it's forgetting that we are saved, we are all saved by grace. We are all made clean by one Savior. Not the fact that I'm Jamaican or Kenyan or South African. That doesn't save me and make me clean. What makes me clean is the blood of Christ. And so, Paul's approach is radically different. He simply says to Peter, you've forgotten. You will not work walking straight. This area of your life needs to come into line with the gospel. You see, I believe that this is the way we can learn to oppose people, but in a loving way. I love Paul. Paul says, gently instruct those that oppose you. He doesn't say get angry. He doesn't say try and twist their arm. He just says, gently oppose them, teach them the gospel, and let the Holy Spirit in their lives transform them. It's a, different, it's a different, radically different approach. I'm convinced of this. If we are, if we are absolutely co- uh, committed to showing people the riches that they have in Jesus and the love of Christ and the fullness of their salvation and how the gospel sets us free in every area, if we are absolutely committed to showing them that, on the one hand, at the same time, we will be personally pointing them to their value, to their dignity, and we appeal to that at the same time as we point them to Christ. Automatically, we treat them in a dignified way. Does that make sense? If we are trying to motivate people by threatening them, or saying, you have to change, you have to be a good Christian. If you try and motivate people like that, it's very hard to do that and respect them at the same time. And you know, this is the problem. You might be saying that with your mouth, but at the same time, they are feeling, this person is not for me. This person is angry with me. This person is not for me. And so I say to you, as I'm learning in my own life, that the grace of God is the only motivator, can only be the only motivator. The gospel. You see, verse 12, the last little point is that Peter's racial problems, his racial pride, was because he was rooted in fear. That say it says in verse twelve. It said he was afraid of the circumcision party. And when our sin is rooted in fear, this is the great irony that the only thing that gets us out of that fearful state is that someone has to love us, and someone has to encourage us, and someone has to stand with us until we get the courage to overcome our fear and to address the thing that we need to address and to live differently. That's why I said it requires courage. 
It requires friendship. It requires love. It requires someone coming next to us and walking with us and loving us and just showing us that thing that needs to change without getting all legalistic, without putting stuff on people and letting us know that they are still for us, even though that thing is wrong. Are you with me? It's a radically different approach. And so Paul is also saying to Peter, not only was his fear of the circumcision party wrong, but he was also reminding Peter that Jesus had already justified him. He was already perfectly acceptable because of Christ. He already had the full approval in his life of God. And so he didn't need the approval of these men that were coming and saying, you need to become Jewish to become a Christian. He didn't need the approval anyway because Jesus had given him all that already. So I want to say to you, you don't need anyone else's approval. You are approved by God. He has loved you perfectly. You are his son. This is the great accolade of the gospel, the highest thing that the gospel says about you and I. We are sons of God. We are daughters of God. We have the highest approval that we would ever need from anyone. You don't need everyone else's approval. You don't need your Greek friends to say, you will only be acceptable to us if you continue to hang around with us. All your South African friends, all your Jamaican friends, I love everybody, want to bring it, but, but what gives you your approval is Jesus. So, what does this have to be, do with a multicultural church? <laughs> it has everything to do with becoming a multicultural church and, and that promise that God gave us. And I want to urge you, as we move forward into the next 10 years of this church's life, that we are going to continue to embrace every nation, every people group, every culture, and see them become part of this forest, this place of revival, this thing that God is doing here, and I'm saying to you, I only believe it is possible that we can do that if we treat each other in this gospel-founded, centered, Christ-centered way. It's the only way it's possible. And so I want to ask you three questions as uh, we finish, which I've asked myself this week. Because remember, Paul doesn't motivate anyone in the New Testament by saying, you must do this because it's what Christians do. He never motivates like that. He motivates like this. He says, remember the gospel. Remember what Jesus has done for you. And what does that look like in your life right now? That's how he motivates people. I found that incredibly challenging. And so I want to encourage you with these three questions. And I want to ask that you reflect on these, that you pray into these, and that you would, um, as I am doing, ask God to transform the areas of your life that still need to be transformed by the, the power of the gospel. And the simple, very simple questions. What area of your life, what area of your life can you increasingly bring into line with the truth of the gospel in the next month and the next year? What area of your life, maybe there's something right now that you know, God's saying that thing that needs to come into line with the truth of the gospel. Will you give yourself to that one thing? Just say, okay, Lord, I'm not going to try and change everything. I recognize that one thing. Will you help me by the power of the Spirit to bring that thing into line with the gospel. Yeah? Secondly, is there anyone in this church community that you've not been eating with because they're not like you? (laughs) 
Is there anyone that you've not been eating with because they're not like you? Will you allow, will you allow God to change that? Maybe next week we're going to eat with some people that we might not normally eat with because they're not like us. Amen? I'm, I'm, please, I'm not trying to put anything on anyone. Just saying, asking some questions, yeah? Thirdly, how can we learn as a community to motivate each other, ourselves and other Christians, not out of guilt, but out of a love for the gospel? How can we learn to motivate ourselves and other Christians, not out of guilt, I'm saying people need to do stuff, be good Christians, out of a love for Christ and a love for the gospel. I'll leave you with those three things. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying that... Uh, in fact, I'm saying the very opposite. I'm saying it requires bravery. It requires courage. The motivation, motivation for it can only be love and it can only be possible by the Holy Spirit. So we can't do this on our own. But I trust it encourages you because there is, for this church a wonderful destiny that God has. And we are seeing it unfold, and it only is possible as we allow the Holy Spirit to root us in the truth, the freedom of what Jesus brings, and that we live that out in a real way, and it affects everybody in our lives. Amen.